0: Good afternoon, good morning everyone from wherever you are in the world. I'm Mark, as you know from Twitter. I'm really happy to be here with you for a second edition of the Child Rights Chat. Um, in the previous podcast, we had the wonderful Nibi Bile, um, who is based in Greenland and she's an advocate for decoloniality in Greenland. So give that a listen if you haven't yet. Um, today we come to you with yet another psychologist, Um, just like Nibi, but who will take a very kind of different approach in what she will talk to us about today. Um, Vera Rodriguez, um, whose pronouns are she, her, is a clinical psychologist and certified plant-based nutritionist based in Guatemala City. She offers in-person and online therapy, nutritional counselling and workshops, as well as conferences in the area of psychology and holistic health. She studied psychology, cognitive behavioural therapy, and she will be talking to us about youth and all things therapy in general, as well as social justice applied to the place where she lives right now, Guatemala City. Her Instagram, in case you wanna give her a follow, is VR Health and Wellness. Vera's here with us now. It's wild because we're connected across an ocean right now. I'm in Europe <laughs> and she's in Guatemala. Vera, how are you?
1: I am great. Thank you so much for this opportunity and for having me.
0: Yeah, I'm really, really excited because we know each other outside of the <laughs> podcast world. So it's going to be a great chat because we already have something to build this conversation on. Um, very true. Yeah. So how is it? I'm going to just dive straight into it because I'm very curious about all the things I want to ask you. Um, I was wondering, how would you describe today's youth's mental health? How does that compare also with the mental health of previous generations?
1: hmm. Well, it could be better (laughs) Um, mental health now in youth could be better because it has been a noticeable decrease or increase, I would say, an increase in youth hopelessness. This is something that I see very often. A lot of uh, young adults, teenagers, and even children have been reporting feelings of hopelessness, sadness depression from 2009 to 2020, there was a 40% increase in depression cases, for example, or children and youth reporting being sad or feeling lonely or feeling neglected, you know? So that is very, that's, that's a big number. It's very impactful to hear those kind of numbers. So mental health right now could be better um it compares to other generations i think because at least now which is the positive side at least now um it's more open and people are more willing to seek help in the mental health department people are more willing to go either to a therapist or support groups or coach life coaching or counseling you know so that aspect to me is very good to me that is a positive thing that is going on with mental health. However, you know, in past generations, the biggest difference that I see is that parents of this generation are not very keen on their children and youth receiving mental health, because to them, it was very different. It was not accessible or as accessible as it is now. So the biggest difference that I see between this generation and past generations is that the acceptance that mental health is important and it is something to be treated like any other thing that would happen to your body, you know?
0: Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. And especially I wonder, because I was thinking mental health surely has um, worsened over the course of the pandemic, Mm -hmm. because that's not just uh, in the youth, that's for everyone as we know, and it's so talked about nowadays. But I was wondering, how come from 2009, um, that 40% 40% increase in hopelessness?
1: Well, there's many things you have, well, many things, recession, uh, conflicts that have to do with war, immigration, and all the things happening around the world have an influence on this increase. But mainly, I think it's because the generations from 2000, the generations that were living in between 2009, 2020, most of them to me, and this is my opinion, were neglected generations. And what I mean by neglected, parents were working, parents were traveling, some children didn't have attention in their homes. Some of these children and you know, now young adults uh, were denied mental health. So the increase of that symptom, because that's a symptom, right? Uh, depression and sadness and all these things, they are symptoms of a bigger thing. Stress related, um, Uh, depression for example increased a lot because they were living under stressful situations parents with financial stress uh, school shootings started you know so all of these things had an influence in that time lapse or in that time space so I think that's why there's an increase and you mentioned something very important that was an increase between those years and in between 2020 and 2020 2022, which we are right now, there's been a 25 increase. So plus that 25% increase in feelings of hopelessness, depression, sadness, anxiety, stress. So we have to think that all these numbers are related to context. You know, what's happening around the world is a big influence. I can be living in Guatemala like I am right now, but what happens in the other side of the world also has an influence. So those numbers increase, varying, and I think depending on what's happening on in the world, as as it would with anyone. You know, not just with youth and children, like I said, but for anyone.
0: Because it's true, we live in interconnected world, uh, thanks to social yep. media, to yes. all the technologies and advancements. Um, so it is a very crucial point that what happens on one side of the world impacts everyone. And an example of that also on a completely different level is climate change, which I think also is having a tremendous impact on the mental health of especially those young ones who are um, becoming more and more aware of the climate crisis that we have upon us. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so also on the line of what you were talking about, I was wondering what are the main factors in your opinion and your professional opinion to ensure good mental health in children and youth?
1: I think it has, it's kind of a snowball effect, I like to say, because it comes from parents. For example, if parents are open to talking about mental health, you know, that is the first step. If my child, my teenager or my son or daughter or whatever is having issues and I can see that, but I am very close to listening to what they're feeling or I don't have an open door or an open ear to listen to what's going on, that's the first step, right? Because their home or home should be a safe place where I can say how I feel. So ensuring good mental health starts with, I would say, in children and youth starts with parents being very open about it. Another thing is just talking about it, you know, having the courage to talk about how you feel and ensuring that it's okay to feel the way you feel you know, it's valid to feel the way you feel that ensures mental health. I think another thing is that um, having no judgment in our families and in our communities, when somebody says, hey, I need help, ensures good mental health, you know, um, letting people express what they're feeling, no matter what it is that they're feeling is of the most importance. So I think it starts with parents. I think it's also um with our children and our youth to tell them hey everything's okay you're gonna be okay if you seek help and if you need help we will provide that for you so having spaces for children to go to you know or for youth to go to um i know sometimes the financial aspect is one of the things that doesn't ensure that kids can go to a mental health specialist so there should be more open spaces so ensuring. Mental health equals having parents involved, having children uh, understand that it's okay to have feelings and seeking help and having places where they can go and seek that help.
0: That's really interesting. And I can only think for myself, I'm 21 years old, so I'm still really young. And uh, the awareness of mental health was more prevalent in my generation than previous generations for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, But I still, think that it wasn't normalized enough and that was in a very privileged background i grew up in so i can only think that in other places of the world especially in the global south where the most basic needs are and Mm -hmm. aren't even covered these conversations can't be had so i think it's like really really important also that which i know you do as a therapist also address the kind of different levels of reality that exist mm-hmm. in this planet and um, how, for some people who don't even have the bare minimum, um, that must undeniably also have a very hard impact on their mental health, because yeah, if you can't access food, you can't really go as far as to think about how you're feeling, right? Because you just feel hunger.
1: Completely, and I think you touched on a very important point. The thing that I was saying, like it is accessible to only some people so how do we talk about or how do we ensure good mental health with people that don't have access to this it's just by bringing awareness i think and in some part making it not a taboo in my country especially and and i'm going to speak about my country i don't know how it is in other places but here it's not very culturally accepted still to go to a therapist not not in the city, not in the outskirts of the city, so it's something that is not even discussed, you know. So, how can we ensure mental health on children that don't even have access to this, or that, it, or that it's not even talking about talked about? Sorry, it's just to bring awareness in any way you can. Every time you can speak about it, just bring the awareness wherever you can, so it's more open for families and people that don't have access to it.
0: It's yeah, definitely. And it's really interesting because uh, last week with Nibi, we were also talking about how um, trauma is perpetuated through generations Mm -hmm. and across generations, if it's not healed. And you're mentioning that one of those really important pillars to ensure good mental health in the youth and children is your parents. So I think there's definitely a link there, which is uh, also something to point out when we look at all these really interesting conversations we're having on this podcast um and yeah uh we you and i have been talking about activism in the past and outside of the podcast outside of the microphones mm-hmm. and all of that um but i think that one of the ways in which you do activism is doing that very thing you're preaching which is uh, making therapy a lot more accessible to people yeah. and mm-hmm. you offer reduced fees because of that to people um around the world and i know that for myself and also for people around me, that has uh, really made a difference because we've been able to access mental health support that we wouldn't have otherwise been able to sustain in the long run, financially speaking. So mm-hmm. yeah. this is a public thank you for providing that. <laughs> uh, and yeah, that being your kind of activism, how how do you approach it? How do you view it?
1: I've always thought that when you do something like. I do, when you become a therapist, when your objective is to help people, you know, in any way you can, that should always be your focus. It doesn't have to be how much you can earn from helping somebody. It doesn't have to be how much fame you can get from being a really good therapist. You know, something that happens very often now in social media that I see therapists just blowing up and doing all these millions of things, but are they really, you know, interested in helping the person that they're talking to so my objective has always been that and if in some form or in some way I can help by either reducing fees or giving out free sessions or talking in a community about mental health or speaking to children when I'm in school or with the friends of my little daughter you know so anything that I can do that brings awareness to how important it is to pay attention to our feelings and to how we feel and to how we treat others and we treat ourselves. To me, that's a job well done. That's all I want to do in life. You know, I don't know how else to express it.
0: Yeah, I think it's really beautiful. And especially as someone who does activism, just like a lot of the people who listen to this podcast do, um, I think it's so important to have access to that mental health because otherwise uh, yeah. We burn out and we kind of also start having feelings of hopelessness when we work so hard to change something socially speaking and we can mm-hmm. see those changes because the system isn't changing so yeah mental health is really at the core of the progress of, of our society, so I think.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: it's it's really essential um, that. that I,
1: is really I, I just want to add that it's incredibly and. Also, the people who decide to do activism because it is so emotionally draining. So, when you choose to become an activist, when you choose to do things for others through activism, you have to be very aware that your emotions and your mental health are going to come into play and you have to pay attention to it. So, immediately, my thought would be okay, I want to do activism. I want to be, you know, stress mentally and emotionally i'm going to reach out it doesn't matter how but you have to reach out that's the main goal you know
0: yeah it's it's really 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 important what you're saying (laughs) i totally (laughs) add on that so if you missed those 30 seconds because you were cleaning while listening to this podcast scroll back in time and (laughs) listen to that again (laughs) um and also on that note i want to ask you what is the real impact of therapy on someone's mental health because I've often heard that, like, people say it doesn't really work for me. I try, but it doesn't really work. It's not for everyone. Is that really just a myth? Or is it true Mm -hmm. that it doesn't work for everyone in the same way?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, we have to accept it. You know, sometimes therapy doesn't work for everybody. Sometimes being in a room with a person, talking about your past trauma, is more hurtful than helpful, depending on the professional that you're talking to. So for some people, when they say it hasn't worked, maybe is because the person that they were talking to was not the right match or didn't really understand what they were going through. I don't know. There could be many factors why therapy doesn't work. Now, we also have to think about therapy not as something that is very Modern, or it's just coming up, it is more talked about now, you know. But it this has been going on for centuries, you know. Uh, talk therapy, which is the most famous type of of therapy, has been going on since the 1800s when people used to call their doctor and tell them they were, Oh, you can do this, you can do this, and just the relief of that anxiety of having a professional say, It's okay, you're going to be okay, just you know this are the things that you can do has been going on for centuries. So the impact that it has on society is big because first of all, just that is being very objective and listening to us and paying attention and wanting to help us in any way that they can. That makes me feel valuable. That makes me feel like care, like I care for myself. The other person that is working with me cares and that there's a reason for why I'm going through this, and that I'm going to come out of this. And if I have all of that in my mind, I am going to be, this is going to sound maybe terrible, but not really, I'm going to be a functional, happy human, you know, if I feel that there's care about me, and what's going on with me, I'm going to be okay. And that Way, when I feel like that, I'm going to show it to other people in the way my relationships work is going to improve. And as a society, we know that it's all about relationships, how I relate to others. So if I'm working on myself and I feel valuable and I feel happy and I feel seen and heard, that is going to project into my relationships and that work. And, you know, therefore it's going to kind of, again, snowball. It's going to impact the circle or the social circle that I live in or the society that I live in.
0: And that maybe there's a a connection that I'm finding here, which is not very obvious, but I can't help um, but think of it Um, (laughs) in the area of social movements. um, There's um, kind of a study, a political study that was um, done, which if I remember well, um, suggested that if 3.5% of the population um, enter a social movement or embrace a cause, eventually in a matter of a really short period of time, that change or that social movement will transform society completely. So when speaking of activism, for example, you wouldn't need hundreds of, or millions of people um, involved in your cause, just as long as you change the 3.5% of the population, that will already trickle down in this noble effect. Um, so mm-hmm. I can't help but connect it to what you were saying. If only 3.5% mm-hmm. of the population became aware of their of their emotions, but mm-hmm. simply, um, mm-hmm. maybe we could finally live in a very more happier, um, in a more happier society, in a more balanced society, in a healthier society. Right.
1: I, I didn't know this. I didn't know the numbers. So thank you for sharing that. I mean, I, I wasn't aware of the study, but what I do connect to now, what you're saying is that. What happens when I decide to work on my mental health is that it produces an immediate change. How so? Is because it makes us responsible. And it's something that you were talking about. It makes us responsible for our feelings. So understanding our feelings and we become responsible of our feelings, but we also become empathetic and kind of uh, you know, more aware of what others are feeling. So it's like you said, it's connectivity, if I am doing this for me, and I impact the person that I'm talking to, and that person impacts another, I see what you're saying about that study, it takes just a few people and for all of us to see this is important. And because we're all working on our feelings and because we are responsible for our feelings and we want to be responsible with other people, we're all going to fight for the same thing or we're all going to be on the same page. There's incredible potential when a society decides to work together. But we can only work together if we are okay with ourselves, you know? So it makes complete sense what you were saying.
0: It also makes a lot of sense to me. (laughs) Um, I hope that. all of our audience um thinks the same because um, <laughs> i mean i'm neurodivergent and i believe that you're neurodivergent yeah. as well yes. um, <laughs> so i think that <laughs> sometimes at least when i find myself um talking to other other neurodivergents we can get in very complex conversations that then don't make a lot of sense for the rest of the group
1: <laughs> it happens yes yeah. I-, I agree
0: <laughs> i just took a second there to kind of um expose our public to um, Neurodivergent seekers. there's so many <laughs> yes. of us and the world is not really made for us so
1: yeah. no and it, it should be you know there should be more openness to talk about it it's exactly what I was saying a little bit ago I think the more we bring awareness to the many differences there are the more it becomes available and it's less taboo and it's less scary ultimately to talk about it you know so. mm-hmm.
0: exactly yeah it's only taboo because it's not talked about. So until we, yeah. do the taboo mm-hmm. by talking about it, there will be a taboo, and we won't talk. Before. Yes,
1: I agree <laughs> completely.
0: Um, I want to speak more about activism uh, with mm-hmm. you because we're both passionate about these topics. But I'll first want to ask you about um a really simple question which you've already kind of touched on, uh, and it's connected to something that I left. Um, one of my parents was actually going to therapy for a very long time and they hid it from me, they decided to hide it from me. And I found wow. out through someone else and I was just really shocked that mm-hmm. knowing that I went to therapy, I've basically gone to therapy since I was maybe 12 years old. So something that was so normal for them to want to provide for me, they would hide about themselves. So mm. because I was shocked by that, I wanted to ask. Why are so many people reluctant to go to therapy and, yeah, well, hide that they go to therapy or not talk (laughs) to their friends about it?
1: I think there's many reasons why people are reluctant to to go to therapy. The first of all is the view on it. Uh, It can be cultural. It can be uh, the way our parents, for example, were raised. When you were talking about uh, your parents, it's not socially a thing that you accept you know so much to say hey I have issues you know that that's saying that out loud is like so what's wrong with you and also I think there's a lot of uh, fear of judgment you know like when I say I'm going to therapy the immediate thought of somebody usually is why what's happening what's wrong why are you not functioning or are you suffering or so the fear of that judgment and the fear of all those questions arising when I say hey I want to go to therapy and maybe I'm not prepared to answer those questions you know that is why a lot of people are reluctant not only to go to therapy but to talk about even approaching it you know that's one I think another one It's just fear, you know, going to therapy is going to open a lot of doors, it's going to touch on your trauma, it's going to touch on things that maybe you've blocked for a lot of time that maybe you don't want to see. So there's a lot of fear that when I go to therapy, I'm going to open this Pandora's box, let's say, and everything is going to come out. And I'm not going to know how to fix it. I'm not going to be able to manage it. So a lot of people are reluctant because of that, because they fear that it's never going to end. You know, I open it and I'm never going to get out of it. So I think fear is, I think fear for me is one of the most common. Now therapy is more accepted, but it's very personal. So I think fear would be the main reason why.
0: Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Um, And I'm going to go a little bit off script, if that's okay. It's fine. Um, I was wondering um, kind of, what connection does that have to toxic masculinity? Because I was recently reading about how uh, men find it uh, feminine to actually go to therapy. So Mm -hmm. do you have any thoughts on that?
1: I have many thoughts on that, (laughs) but let's go to, to one of the main things. And I think is masculinity has been defined by people that need masculinity to be defined. I will clarify this, okay? So I need the masculine sense of of the word masculine, okay? To be, or to fit a certain mold in order for me to sell things, in order for me to um, uh, have this sort of character that I want to portray for my products, for example. So anything that has to do with teaching, talking, emotions, sensibility, awareness of who I am, and how I am expected to perform in this world. All of those things are related to women, because we are sensitive, right? We are sensitive creatures. Our own femininity makes us, or I don't know if you know this, probably you do, but any emotion that we used to have back in the day let's say 1920s 1930s and all those stuff we were considered hysterical because of our femininity you know it was hormonal when we uh, decided that we were sad (laughs) decided and i used decided because it was a decision it was not something i was feeling you are being sad because you want to be sad you know so all of these things was because of my hormones so i was hysterical so if a man is sensitive What does that say it means that you're being led by your hormones it means that you're being so hormones are not in men you know there's this thought that men don't experience mood changes because of their own biology and their genetics you know so men have been encased in this box that says just function your feelings don't matter leave feelings to women they will take care of it. They're good enough at that, you know? So, um, men don't seek help. It's, and I, I can speak from my personal experience. I have a lot of clients and from that number of clients, 1% is male. So it's very strange for me to see that in 2022, men still don't seek help because they have to fit this mold of masculinity where they don't feel, their feelings don't matter. You just have to work. You just have to function. And on top of that, you have to be like, I don't want to say perfect, but you have to be kind of the perfect man, you know?
0: Oh my God, that's wild that you only have one male client. And I know- No, no, not one
1: one male client, 1%. So let's say- Uh 1%.
0: Okay, well, that's- Uh, that's still incredibly <laughs> wild to me.
1: <laughs> it's it's very low, you know, and I have to add, and I give props to European culture in this, uh, the 1% of male uh, clients that I have are European. They're not Latin American because in Latin America, being a man going to therapy is still not, let's say, accepted or it's not seen like something that you should do. Why, why are you going to therapy, you know? You're macho, so.
0: Yeah, (laughs) and I'm thinking that might also have something to do with the fact that maybe those uh, of your clients who are European have um, maybe a capacity to spend more. And then even though the majority might not wanna wanna go to therapy um, in Europe, that person who does want to go to therapy, they have the access, the financial accessibility to do that. While someone in Latin mm-hmm. America also doesn't have it, but I totally hear you when you're talking about how Latin American men would not want to go to therapy, um, as as a rule, as a general rule, because the mm-hmm. same thing happens in Spain. And I think culturally mm-hmm. speaking, Spain and Latin America are not so far from each other. Um, They're
1: kind of similar. Some yeah. similarities, yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, especially if you compare it to, like, Scandinavia, where I am right now, it's, yeah, I can <laughs> see a lot more uh, similarities between Spanish people and Latin American. Mm-hmm. Um, by those who don't know, I was, I, I was born and I grew up in Barcelona, so I'm not just wondering, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. it, I, I kind of have a reference.
1: You know, um, yeah.
0: Yeah, but, yeah, it, it's really interesting that um, you find that some people in the world are more open to it than, than others.
1: Completely. And And it doesn't, sorry to add, but it doesn't just only apply to men. I see a lot of openness to going to therapy in women, also more in European countries or in the United States and Canada, which are people that I also work with, than in Latin America, Mm -hmm. you know. And and I think it's also because I think it's cultural and, and it's the way people are raised in Latin America. It's like, oh, just get over it, you know you're fine. There's a a joke going around, which I don't think it's funny. Um, But when um, a child in Latin America says, oh, you know, I'm feeling depressed. And the mom immediately says, you're not depressed, you're just bored, go clean your room or something like this, you know, so Mm -hmm. it's not accepted yet. So most of my clients come from different backgrounds. I don't want to say that's a good thing. I don't want to say that's a bad thing. It's just different, you know, the way we approach therapy. In different parts of the world.
0: That makes sense. I was wondering, would you say that therapy is Western, at least in its beginnings, or is it something that appeared across boards, across cultures?
1: I think therapy, the term therapy actually became a thing, like I was saying before, in the 1800s. And the first therapist to become really famous was Freud. So, of course, it's more associated with Western culture. Than anything else you know it started with psychoanalysis and then we had other therapists like young and beck and nobody was you know not western let's say so yeah this is why it's more associated in that sense i think
0: and do you think that in other parts of the world um indigenous leadership would kind of be an equivalent to what therapy is like for example um a group of people from the village who have problems can go to their leader, whether that's a spiritual leader or just a village leader. Would you think Mm -hmm. there's a connection there?
1: Completely. You know, in Latin America, it happens a lot that... I'm I'm not going to be specific. I'm going to generalize, you know? But it happens a lot that instead of seeking therapy, they go to a religious leader. They go to their church and talk to the pastor, you know? and they talk about their problems most of the time they can't talk about all of the things that they're going through because it's a religious setting but at least they find some comfort in knowing that there's somebody that can kind of guide them you know so it happens a lot it's very common that they don't seek a therapist but they seek their religious leader
0: Mm -hmm. yeah I hadn't (laughs) thought of that actually and it's something that is replicated across the world I guess even with the not even just in Indigenous settings, but also with the major religions in the world. It's true, there's always that figure who kind of looks after the believers. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. yeah. And then back to my hyper-focused topic, my topic of interest, (laughs) interest, (laughs) which I keep bringing back all the conversations to. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) So when we speak of social justice and human rights abuses, Uh, mm-hmm. We often talk about the effects of having your human rights violated on your body. Like, for example, um, Nivi last week was talking to us about how um, Greenlandic women were forced IUDs yes. um, inside their bodies so that they wouldn't have children. And uh, the Danish government was trying to prevent prevent women from having more children because then there would be more Inuit. And that was mm-hmm. a racial minority that inherently they hated. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, those are human rights um, violated on someone and the impacts on, on their bodies. But what's the impact of these violations on mental health? Um, mm-hmm. so in kind of like a broader context, what are the effects of being marginalized and made a minority in a space you inhabit, say a country or, mm-hmm. yeah, or even a village, if, it's, if whatever identity you have is less common there than in the wider country, mm-hmm. for example?
1: Uh, I understand, you know, being marginalized in any sense has a huge impact on your mental health. And there's different types of marginalization. That's a long word, I think. Um, It can be, you know, it can be because of your ethnicity, because of your sexual orientation, because of your beliefs. So there's many ways people are marginalized. But the impact it has on your mental health, to me, the first thing is I am undervalued as a human, you know, some characteristic that you find different in me makes me less of a human or makes me less important, or my health, my well-being doesn't matter as much as yours. So being undervalued, I think, is a big impact it has on mental health. That's the first thing. The second thing is, I think, the feeling of being unsafe, you know, if I am being marginalized, it's because they either fear me or they don't want me. So I don't feel safe. And a feeling of unsafety, of of constant unsafety has a big impact on my mental health. I live stressed. I live anxious. I live in fear. And all of those things don't make me or don't let me, don't allow me to be completely who I want to be and do the things that I want to do. So For me it has a big impact a a tremendous impact on mental health you know it it can result in depression isolation Um, isolation can become a form of anger and then I can do horrible things if I feel really neglected you know so it has a huge impact I think
0: and um, it's a bit of a kind of tricky question because I know what you will want to reply to that, but I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> um, if you had in one hand, the, per- the person who perpetrates that marginalization, that, that basically the oppressor on one hand, and then the person who is oppressed, the victim on the other hand, who do you think should receive therapy most urgently?
1: Wow. That's a great question. Um, okay. I will, I will, I will explain why I would choose both. (laughs) But if it's urgent, you know, um, if it's urgent, I would choose the person that's being marginalized. Why? And the reason why is because as you said a little bit earlier, things are not changing really fast. Things are not, we're not creating change as quick as we should. Okay. So in order for me to change an oppressor would take time. A lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of working through their own trauma and bringing them back to realizing that they don't need to be the oppressor. So there's all these things. But the urgency of somebody that's going through feelings of stress and anxiety and sadness and isolation and loneliness and anger and all these things that happen with marginalization is urgent. It's right now. I have to take care of you right now if there's anything that I can do for you to feel a little bit safe in this thing, that's not changing, I'm going to do that. So if I had to choose, I would choose the person, the oppressed, let's say.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. That's very interesting. Uh, interesting, but insightful choice. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also for those who are marginalized because of their sexual orientation, yeah, um, like, that starts at a very early age because myself I have gone through this not Mm -hmm. in a very um movie-like way where I was beaten up or anything like that by my Mm -hmm. colleagues by my classmates Mm because we also tend to believe that when we're oppressed there's like a certain way to be oppressed which is always very violent when white people think of racism um they think of really overt kind of forms of uh, marginalization to the point where yeah. it's really dehumanizing. But I think mm-hmm. it's really important to talk about these nuances um, that there are between like peace, equality, and the most of types of racism. There's a lot of layers of racial microaggressions, uh, whether they're of course or smaller, that are so important to like contextualize because otherwise, we won't progress as a society, for example, in tackling anti-racism or anti-LGBT phobia. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, I was, I've gone on a tangent, but basically (laughs) that um, me as a kid, I had these feelings of being marginalized because of my sexual orientation, Um, even though I didn't necessarily go through really horrible um, physical violence or anything like that, but just the space for me to be wasn't really there um and actually i didn't know what a gay person was up until the age of 10 so all my life i believed myself to be straight which is so not the case today so Mm
1: -hmm.
0: i'm just really shocked at how like not only um oppression but also lack of representation in whatever social group you're in and how that can affect your mental health as well
1: Mm -hmm. i think you know we have to really come back to a very important point marginalization impacts all of the things that I said earlier with your sexual orientation it also strips away basic rights basic rights like marriage basic rights like employment basic rights like being accepted um in certain groups you know so it's it goes beyond just feeling sad or Isolation or stress, it goes beyond that, because when you're denied a thing that everybody has a human right, it has even a bigger impact, you know, so. It's very different being marginalized for sexual orientation, I think it has even a more or a bigger impact than just being marginalized for other reasons.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah and um, I would really like to send out a message to any kids or youths that are listening to us because uh, there are a lot of um, resources now that you can um, look for and that you can um, basically put yourself into even if your environment is really hostile towards you because of your sexual orientation um, and you don't feel ready to come out because maybe it could even be dangerous for your life um mm-hmm. so yeah i just would like to say to those people who are not ready to come out that they are fully accepted that they are loved um for their queerness even if i don't know you i love you in your queer existence mm-hmm. um but i think actually our demographic our listeners demographic uh, of this podcast is mostly middle-aged people um or people who maybe have children themselves so mm-hmm. for those who are uh, Obviously, anti-homophobia. Um, who are not homophobic themselves, but they still feel that there's something that's not not quite there. That's like not quite clicking. Uh, if they found out that their children would be gay, for example, what would you say to them? Any tips for parents who might have um, a queer kid or who should prepare before the kid possibly comes out for mm-hmm. them to be queer? <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. I may not. <laughs> give right now such a professional opinion, I'm gonna give more a parent opinion because I myself am a parent. So the thing that you have to remember is that whatever choice your child makes, the moment you decided to have your child, I think for most of us, the objective was, I want my child to be happy and healthy. And that means happy in whatever they choose and whoever they choose to be with and love and healthy in every sense, not just physically, but mentally healthy also. And if that is necessary to remind parents that health is also mental health, that's the first thing that I would do, it doesn't matter what sexual orientation your child has. If your objective was always for your child to be happy and healthy, you have to open the door, at least for them to talk about it. You have to open the door to listen to what they feel their choice of partner or who they decide to love doesn't change the child that you have they're still your child the person that they love is just not what you would choose for yourself but for them it's different you know so just open the door and remember that's what you wanted and if that's what they makes them happy and healthy why not
0: you know I think this is a really really powerful message to send out because sadly today we still live in a very well homophobic but also academicized world where people are only valued because of their degrees um so the fact that someone who's a psychologist who has as much knowledge um and experience as you is saying this is incredibly powerful and a lot of people will take you take your words more seriously because of that so i really appreciate it Mm -hmm. um and also because even in the world of um, psychologists, I myself, in my experience, have found that a lot of people had different opinions to you and not for the better (laughs) (laughs) because, as I said, I went to therapy from a very early age. And um, one of the therapists that I had, I had two um, before I became an adult. So one of them actually told my mom uh, when she was thinking whether I was maybe queer um, and I was still a teenager. The therapist basically told her that um, it was kind of not necessarily a mental illness, but an issue that derived from a bad relationship with the dad figure in the family. (laughs) So it was kind of still very stigmatizing on something that is perfectly normal, natural. There's thousands of species in the wild in nature Mm -hmm. who are gay, and I don't think they necessarily have such complex family dynamics. No. Makes sense. (laughs) Um, But yeah, in any case, it, it, it was kind of like denaturalizing. Um, and mm-hmm. that made m- my mom, who was very influential about this topic, she didn't have any information. That made my mom kind of um, incorporate that really homophobic ideology. Um, so, so, yeah, go ahead.
1: To clarify, basically what happened with your therapist at that is that she saw what was going on with you as something to be fixed.
0: Yeah, exactly exactly wow. yeah and it, i guess it also connects to so many um like gay people but also bi especially bi people bisexual people mm-hmm. um receive this microaggression which is that they get told oh it's just a phase it will be over mm-hmm. as in it's mm-hmm.
1: to completely get over
0: mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. you're saying it's something to fix it's something to get over it's not something to, to be taken seriously um mm-hmm. and a lot of queer people also experience that with their parents the moment they start dating someone of the same sex um mm-hmm. because they get their partners referred to as friend instead of partner or romantic uh, partner or boyfriend girlfriend whatever it is
1: mm-hmm. so
0: yeah it's yeah. I, th- I think there's a lot of things to unpack in here which yeah is, is amazing that you also incorporate into the therapy that you give because i know you are very inclusive of lgbt people in your of
1: course <laughs> always yeah
0: I mean it would be wrong not to do such thing but I think it's ex- explicitly <laughs> amazing uh, in given your context because in Guatemala th- the rights of LGBT people are not fully recognized by the law if I'm not mistaken.
1: Not at all and you're correct.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah like you're based in Guatemala and mm-hmm. we have talked about the situation that goes over there and um, mm-hmm. in, just in general we've, we've had a lot of conversations about it but we have also talked about what happens with children and the youth Mm -hmm. who find themselves in the street. What what can you tell us about that? What what is it like for the majority of families in Guatemala? Mm
1: -hmm. Okay, well, I mean, speaking about my country is a complex topic, (laughs) you know, because there's a lot of corruption, there's a lot of, uh, history, violent history also in my country. So a lot of what happens today stems from many, many years of people being mistreated, of people using our country and exploiting our country. So there's a lot going on there, but I'm not going to go into all of that. When we talk about children and youth, and specifically, I think you're referring to when we were talking about people in, uh, situations where they're homeless or they have to live on the streets right so what happens is that we're 17 million people approximately (laughs) i don't know the numbers in our country but yes i think 17 or 18 million people in our country and out of those 17 million people 3.5 million people have difficulties bringing food to the table every day so that is because there's unemployment lack of education lack of opportunities marginalization racism there's a whole bunch of things that makes this uh, a, a thing in my country that is happening that is real you know so when we were speaking about children and youth on the streets and by this I will just clarify for the people listening is children working on the street you know asking for money or you know working with parents in agriculture and all these sorts of things children as young as four years old sometimes as young as two-year-olds are in the streets working let's say so what happens is that um, hard living situations of course are extremes in my country so there's people that live on 4.37 quetzales a day which is less than a dollar that's like 13 cents of a dollar a day So if let's say there's a family of five people in rural, rural, sorry, I can't say the word areas of my country or on the outskirts of my country, um, it's 20 gitzadas a day, which that's like $2 a day. So if you make that, or if you put that in your mind, $2 or two euros, I think right now it's very close, um, a day, what can you do with that? How can you feed a family of five with $2 a day. So it's very difficult. And what happens is that instead of having opportunities or children going to school, which is something that we would all want, children work. They go on the streets and they ask for money and they work. And their mothers are along with them on the streets cleaning windshields or juggling or you know whatever it is they can come up with for the people on the street to give money because that's the way they survive. So it's very, it's a very difficult reality that my country lives every day, you know? Now, having said that, um, there's always been this drive and I think myself and other people that I know to help people in these situations, right? So, because we have more resources because we have the availability to do so, because we want to help basically that's we don't want to see this happening so you and I were talking about. um, When we had the opportunity to to share time about what we could do with this situation right, so the reason why I feel so connected to helping people and especially mothers, I think i'm very. My heart is very close to what mothers go through in my country because of patriarchy and because of the way they're seen, you know? So um, one of the things that I've always wanted to do is help mothers and their children, you know, how can we help communities? How can we help mothers and children in this situation? So we were speaking about, you know, how can we do this? Can there be a safe place for them to go? Can we help communities that need aid in, just basic needs like food, water, uh, medicine, shelter, you know, all these things. So I think you and I touched upon that because this is something that I would really like to do. But I don't know if, if we should continue with this or you have a question before I continue.
0: No, like 100%. I think it would be really interesting um, if you could tell us a little bit about the project, which was your idea. And I'm basically jumping on the <laughs> on the train, on the moving train with you and uh, trying to support you as like you a Guatemalan who wants to create change in her country and Mm -hmm. trying to not um like that's on my end trying not to perpetuate colonial politics of Mm -hmm. me just jumping to a different country across the ocean and trying to change things Mm -hmm. in a reality that I don't really know so yeah I'll instead of taking up space to talk about the project I would like to Mm -hmm. invite you to um explain what the idea is um that we are currently working on
1: okay so the project did start out differently than what is shaping out to be right now and the reason why is because like you said we have to be very aware of what goes on in the country so speaking to friends and speaking to people that know about this Um, the idea originally was to create a safe space for mothers to be able to Uh, leave their children and their children would be fed, educated, taken care of while they go out and work. However, that takes time and that takes resources. And sometimes the places where at some point we thought about or I thought and you were very excited about doing this are kind of difficult to achieve right now, at least. So speaking about how we could help uh, our communities and people that have these very present needs, needs that are uh, not only present, but very urgent, I would say. That's the word that I wanna use, urgent, such as malnutrition, chronic malnutrition, for example. How can we help? So speaking to friends and people that know about this and talking about my project and talking about it with you, I think that the idea would be to create this uh, aid Let's say that could help communities in my country taking these resources that we need, you know, like I was saying, food, water, education, shelter, medicine, uh, social and uh, mental health to the families that need it, right? So, how are we going to do that? The idea is to talk to people in the communities, to talk to people that work with communities. Maybe some it's something that's already. Establish or maybe something that is started and how we can help how can, for example, raising funds or making an aid outside of my country could help, how can we use those things to help. We could go to different communities and decide which one of those communities has more urgency, because there's more children because there's more mothers because there's less availability for food, for example, and choose that community and help them with that come to the Community meet the people um you know bring this aid that is so needed and they're that they're not going to get any other way to be honest unless it's a private and a very not only a private but a very personal decision of somebody wanting
0: to help yeah because you were mentioning how uh, public funding is not a reliable source of aid in your country because of the corruption that goes on there so really the only way that there can be a beginning to a relief because as we, as we know, relief is not the end goal. It's just a kind of like a short time, a measure that can literally change lives, but mm-hmm. it's in order to change all lives, we need a systemic um, change that comes from the basically the, the people in power. That's why people have to take the power ultimately.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, it, I agree.
0: Exactly. But in the meantime, um, in order to, spare a lot of suffering uh, that happens in rural areas, like you were saying, in in Guatemala. We would really, really appreciate if um, all of you who are listening could give us just one dollar or one euro, whatever you can, if you can more, that's great. But what we really appreciate is that intention of wanting to contribute to something greater. Um, We would really, really welcome it, because as we both explained, we are currently working on this project. so please find the link on the description of this podcast on the text there should be a link at some point which is a gofundme link and you can just um, donate if you can and if you cannot we would really really appreciate it if you could share it with at least at least three people so that we get the ball rolling and Mm -hmm. um we can we can make a difference because the access that we have to international uh, donors, like yourself who might be listening to this, is extremely key because the currency exchange then to Quetzales in Guatemala will allow us to take your money a lot further and help a lot more people than if we use that money somewhere in the global north. So this is why we have chosen to also talk about this project on here and Mm. um, ask for your donations and uh, generosity. Um, any right. fi- finishing touches on, on that situation in Guatemala um, on your end? Well,
1: or? the thing that I want everybody to to kind of know is that as much as it sounds like a dire situation or that nothing is going to improve, there are a lot of private organizations in my country and people that always want to help. So Be very, very aware that if you do decide to donate, this will go to the communities that need it. This money will not go to waste. This will be used in the most um, loving and useful way possible for the people that need it.
0: Amazing. Thank you for that, Vera. So we have come to the end of the episode and I want to Thank Vera so, so much for having dedicated this time and energy um, to all of us to enlighten us with her um, knowledge about psychology, therapy, and um, also for taking the time to talk to us about her country and how we can all deal with with what's happening globally, this uh, like downfall of human rights and anxieties about the climate and basically a youth that loses hope as every day goes by, how we can deal with all of that, so I'm sure that this episode will really positively impact a lot of people. So thank you so, so much, Vera.
1: Thank you so much for the opportunity. And I think I just want to uh, confirm that this, what you're doing is bringing the awareness that I spoke about throughout the, the episode, you know, it is bringing awareness. It is an open door. So if you feel like you ever need somebody to listen to you, just talk, just say, reach out, talk about
0: what you're feeling. Amazing. Thank you for that last comment, Vera. And I just want to remind everyone that uh, the GoFundMe link is in the description of this episode and that Vera's Instagram is VR space health and wellness. So please go onto her page. And if you want to request any of her services, whether that's um, psychology, therapy at affordable rates um, or counseling, or if you would like her to do a conference, or even just um a session in regards to plant-based nutrition please do contact her on there um and i can assure you from personal experience that she's an amazing professional um and i'm not having any other therapists after vera because she's been really amazing so she's the the one that i'm keeping
1: (laughs) oh (laughs) wow thank you so much yeah of course thank (laughs) you that is very flattering i'm very honored to hear those words thank you so much
0: (laughs) wonderful so once again thank you very so much and uh please stay tuned for the following um episodes of this podcast we will have um a lot of really really interesting uh global advocates that's what this series is called global advocates and we're still focusing on lgbtq rights and climate justice for this series so if you want to learn more about that as well as children's rights and social justice in general please do not miss the following episodes have a great day bye